You are listening to the Tribes of Westminster podcast, co-produced by The Critic magazine and the new Social Covenant unit. The Tribes of Westminster podcast is a monthly interview with a parliamentarian where we uncover the hidden roots beneath the party loyalties of Westminster. We ask, what are the traditions and philosophies that shape their politics? It's Danny Kruger here from the new Social Covenant unit and I'm sitting above a clerical vestment shop in Westminster which is the office of The Critic magazine and I'm here with Sebastian Milbank from The Critic, also my colleague from the new Social Covenant unit, Imogen Sinclair, and my parliamentary colleague Steve Baker who has kindly agreed to be the first of our interviewees on what I hope will be a series of podcasts that we're calling The Tribes of Westminster and the idea behind that is that for all that Westminster is full of individual egos, Steve, not looking at you, no. uh, it's also <laughs> a place full of relationships and groupings. And in fact, it's built on the principle that people don't act independently. We couldn't have parliamentary democracy if everybody no. was entirely independent. Yeah. It works because people collaborate. And so we see these tribes that uh, form. Perhaps more interestingly, the, the tribes within parties rather than uh, the tribes that there are parties. So, Steve, I'm just going to kick off with inviting you to just tell us what the tribe that you think you belong to is. And I know that might be a challenging question because you are quite a lone operator in lots of ways, <laughs> but you're also a great uh, leader and convener and organizer. So, anyway, give us what your tell us what your tribe well, is. Danny, thank you for that um, kind introduction. When I um, first met Paul Goodman, my predecessor in Wickham, he said, uh, what kind of conservative are you? And I said, well, I'm a Christian libertarian. And he said, oh, you'll be the one. (laughs) And I'm afraid, uh, just as you've suggested, you know, I'm probably the only Christian libertarian in Parliament, but that's why I'm a conservative. So um, I end up with a wide range of allegiances of different times. You know, once I made an allegiance with John McDonnell, of of all people, over shareholder rights. He was making an intervention about shareholder rights, which I believe in, because I believe in property. And um, I referred to a book by a reformed Trotskyite, James, uh, James Burnham, called The Managerial Revolution. And um, from a sedentary position, John McDonnell said, some of us are not so reformed, which, of course, I have to acknowledge (laughs) on the record. But um, I think it's a really big problem in our society today that we're very disconnected in our ownership of capital through, say, pension funds from the actual control of that capital and and risk. We're probably getting ahead of ourselves, but that was Mm. the uh, passing allegiance. But obviously, I'm well known for my allegiance with Eurosceptics. Uh, the COVID recovery groups had a wide range of colleagues uh, involved with it, brought me into contact with some people who were on the other side of the EU argument. And then the Net Zero Net Zero Watch campaign and the uh, that whole set of arguments about energy policies brought in yet another group. So yeah. I suppose I tend to form allegiances with whoever is advancing freedom from time mm. to time. Yeah, yeah. So do you think there's no there's actually nobody who you would say you agree with on, on almost everything? In, in my parliamentary researcher Harry okay. he wouldn't mind me saying that Harry <laughs> Harry picked up a book on Austrian school economics yeah. so I recommended it to yeah. him and uh, he came to work for me because he spotted that we, we mostly well, I don't think we disagreed on anything yet oh. but um, so you're creating your own tribe well I'm an old English liberal I can't get away from it I'm I'm a conservative because I'm an old English radical liberal and unrepentantly so why <laughs> you and I have occasionally yeah. arrived at the same conclusions from different directions but um you know, I like to think I'm a Cobden and Bright style 
liberal. Um, and that brings us on to our tribe, if I may. Yeah. You know, I think our tribe contains all useful political debate from the conservative to the classical liberal, because to me, socialism just is a disaster every time it's seriously tried. It always produces poverty, misery and even mass murder. That is the historical experience of trying it. People always say that wasn't really socialism and then we go through it all again. So socialism to me is not a useful part of the political spectrum. Uh, conservatism and classical liberalism is. So I actually love discussing stuff with you. I should shut up and let you mm. come in because to me, this is the essence of politics. Do we conserve what we have or do we sort of radically advance freedom? That's yeah. That's the essential yeah. useful debate. Well, what I found enjoyable in our uh, conversations over the last year or so, and Steve, you and I met first properly during the Brexit, last stages of the Brexit negotiations when Boris was in number 10 and I was working there and we were trying to persuade you and the ERG leadership to support the deal that was being negotiated at the time. Yeah. And you were holding out, quite rightly, for a vision of Brexit that would justify the uh, referendum and that would uh, satisfy our supporters that we were getting a proper deal. Mm. Uh, and you put the case for Brexit then in a essentially libertarian framework, which is it's about power and about accountability and about the right to be governed by people who you can sack, which is the yeah. classical liberal argument. And I'm just quoting quickly from one of your speeches at the time um, in Parliament, that is what I came here to deliver, the ability to have the dignity of determining our own destiny at the ballot box. And you also said um, the public must be able to withdraw their consent from a system of government and have it removed and replaced with a system that they prefer. So your can I paraphrase your Brexitism as essentially a demand for self-government and for freedom? Yeah. It's not what certain other Brexiteers wanted, which was might have been the same thing in policy terms, the same sort of deal, the same outcome of the referendum and the negotiations. The reason they were doing it wasn't necessarily just about freedom and democratic control. It was about the importance of the nation yeah. as an independent state. Mm -hmm. And I just want to sort of explore your idea of freedom as opposed to nationalism. Yeah, because I, traditionally they're the same well, so, because traditionally they were the same thing. I mean, you know, liberalism evolved as an expression of the national of the spirit of national independence from the empires of Europe. Mm -hmm. And you know, the reason Dr. Johnson said the last refuge, you know, patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel, is because he was a Tory and didn't like the liberals of his day, the Whigs, who were always on about national independence in America, mm. France, uh, and, and here they. So the idea of being a liberal was also to be a nationalist in the old days and there's still quite a strong tradition there and you have it on our side but you're not a nationalist you weren't doing this for britain you were doing it yeah sort of for yourself as a citizen right uh i would definitely wouldn't accept for myself i was doing it for all of us as yeah. citizens um but you know i for, for a long time was a european federalist very casually used to drive my wife crazy that was a yeah. european but for all the good classical liberal reasons yeah. free movement of people uh, goods uh, services um capital um so, yeah, I was in favour of the euro and all the rest of it, but it was the handling of the Constitution and Lisbon Treaty that caused me to become a Eurosceptic. So, yeah, I mean, I would accept that you 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 put it in, in a great way. You know, for me, liberty is self-government, no more, no less, as one philosopher once put it. And if you can't get rid of your government peacefully at the ballot box, then there's only the other way, as Karl Popper explained. Uh, it's, to me, it's 
existential, you've got to be able to control power by peacefully withdrawing your consent at the ballot box. And that's what, for me, what it was all about. But as you've intimated, I'm extremely uncomfortable with nation. You know, I've, as a rule, everywhere I've been, I've loved the people I've met. They've always been great, lovely. Mm. The, the danger to civilization everywhere is always politicians. Normal people just <laughs> want to get on with their lives, play sport, love, have families, you know, have a business, whatever, serve others. Normal people are great, but it's always the politicians. And um, to me, nation is a, is a very uncomfortable term, I'll be honest. Now, I love our country. I love it. I love our country. I find myself saying it, it's, it's difficult for me to say I love England because um, it just makes me wince a bit. Um, you know, I, I, I love people wherever they come from. And, um, yeah, so for me, nation is a very uncomfortable term. I don't wrap myself in the flag. I love our flag. But I suppose a bit like C.S. Lewis, he drew the distinction between the healthy love of country, which doesn't in any sense condemn anybody else. Um, I forget where he wrote yeah. about it. But it's, you know, I can love my wife without hating yours, you know. Yeah. And that, that nationalism to me is where love for your own country tips into uh, hatred of others and possibly militarism. So that's why I think yeah. I'm so uncomfortable yeah. with it. So on that basis, you would have, you could have stayed a Europhile and supported EU membership if the institutions of the EU were properly democratically accountable yeah, to, to, to the mem to the to the you know however many hundred, hundred million couple of hundred million people of Europe. It is conceivable, yes. I mean if the Lisbon Treaty had not been ran through by changing the French constitution and asking the Irish twice, I probably wouldn't be in politics. Mm. But what should have happened is when the when the constitution before the Lisbon Treaty was democratically rejected, the political elite of Europe should have taken a different course. And really again if they'd done that I wouldn't have come into politics. Mm. But I, I'm afraid the whole handling of that stuff, which seems arcane to people now, it's a long time ago, more practical people, you know, they, it just was like a mortal sin. You just can't do that. Yeah. You can't say to people, have a vote, and by the way, we're going to ignore you. Um, that, that, that is not the route to peace. Sebastian, your sense is actually that the EU represents <clears throat> a proper relationship between nations that... Well, I mean, my, my attitude is sort of one of a Eurosceptic Remainer, which is I support the EU for deeply practical reasons, which is that I think that the case for the EU is an existential case. It's that I think we're very parochial, that we often look at America and then we occasionally look across the channel and we forget that out there in the world, you know, and I think we're all being reminded of this now, you know, Russia and China are, you know, flexing their muscles, they're constantly straining against um, the kind of Anglo-American consensus on foreign politics that was from uh, the human rights that was established after the war. Um, and we all assumed after the Cold War that things were swinging in a certain way, and they're, they're clearly not anymore. Uh, and, and for me, I think if you look at the kind of cold winds of globalisation, um, you look at some of the kind of the kind of military and ideological threats that are bubbling up in the world, it's the worst time in the world to be for Europe and for the West to be divided against itself. And, uh, and there's a sense in which however imperfect um, European structures are, and God knows they're imperfect, I don't think being out of the gang um, and out of the conversation is really a constructive move for Britain at this time in history. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's real politique, as we need yeah. a powerful bloc in Europe to counter powerful blocs elsewhere. But if I, if I may, so mm, I agree yeah. with so much of what you've said. It's mm. a terrible time for Europe to be divided. Of course mm. it is. But I just point to institutions like the Council of Europe, which unfortunately does have Russia in it now. But, um, you know, we've had various attempts at having European institutions. The unique thing about 
um, the European Union is its power to coerce whole nations. And I mm. think that's probably where we disagree. I mean, all of the great dreams that you just put out, the pra- and, and mm. the pragmatism about the threat to our way of life and our ideas, I agree with about you about all of that. My question is just, do we need to adopt these kinds of coercive structures yeah. which tend to mitigate against democracy in order to deliver what you and I agree is a good thing? Well, I think, I think the question of coercion now becomes quite an interesting one because I think the EU is clearly imperfect. It clearly does coerce what should not coerce and I'm in favour of a more decentralised European Union. That said, I think coercion happens all the time. We just don't think about it or hear about it. And you think about the way, you know, you think about something like the Suez Crisis where that America was able to coerce Britain using dollar diplomacy. You know, coercion happens all the time. We just don't think about it or hear about it because it happens on a bilateral basis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's the quiet arm twisting in back rooms. Uh, the thing I'll say for the EU is at least we're talking about it, at least there are democratic structures, at least it's something that's being challenged and dealt with in a democratic way. Well, I was going to ask Steve a question. We yeah, may return on. to it later, but the new social government unit often talks about the fundamental um, associations of family, community and nation. And, I, and the reason we talk about those things is because, because we sort of believe that individuals are kind of born into these given associations of family, community, nation. Mm. So if you're uncomfortable mm. with nation, could you, I would be interested in, in kind of which associations you do feel kind of a natural affiliation or affection towards. A natural, I use that word kind of purposefully, sort of what what kind of associations, if it's not the nation, do you feel you can feel a kind of given and natural affiliation Excitement with? Where does it start? Does it start yeah. with family, community and end there? Or... Elsewhere. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be misrepresented. I love our country, but it's just that I love other countries too. Um, but yeah, of course, family, of course, family, and of course, community, you know, church. Mm. But one of the things I would say is you pick up the book Principles for a Free Society, lovely, slim book. I'm leading a book club of parliamentary staffers through at the moment. I but, wasn't invited. Well, you could have been invited. You're invited now, but you'll have to come to session number three where we do the last four. But principle number one in the book is civil, civil society. Mm. And people were really surprised that in a libertarian book club, the first thing we talk about was mm. civil society. Yeah. And I absolutely and firmly believe in civil society. But the crucial thing is about it, free association. Mm. Yeah. The Labour Party kept calling everything a community centre. It wasn't a village hall anymore, it was a community centre. Yeah. So it was the state that provided community. Mm. Well, hang on a minute. So I want free association. So... When I look at the, the British Muslims in my const- constituency in the mosque, they have such amazing, wonderful, vibrant community, far beyond their small, close family group. Yeah. They still run mutuals in order to provide for people's burial, for example. Mm. I think not very formally, but nevertheless, no one, no one goes without mm. funds for their burial in Wickham because of mutuals run by uh, British Muslims. They have amazing, rich levels of social capital through freely chosen association. But I'm not. I've never twelve years. I've been in the M, I've been the MP, and I'm extremely popular with at least a third of my Muslim voters. But they've never asked me to be part of that association. I've mm. never requested it either mm. because I'm not a British Muslim, and they're doing it on the basis of there is their Islamic faith, yeah. and that's fine. And let a thousand flowers bloom. And if they want to come to my church, they're very very welcome. But if they want to be members of my church, they'll have to convert to Christianity. And the point I'm making is that it's just how wonderful it, it is to represent Wickham where there are Christians and Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus and others, but they're the main faiths represented and people of no faith. And we can all associate freely and go forwards. But I suppose where I get really radical and where I get really upset is when I think about the 1911 National Insurance Act, which set set out to extend the benefits of friendly societies to everyone and instead destroyed them. 
mm. and allowed the state to be captured in particular, God bless doctors, my wife's a doctor, in particular by the medical establishment. Mm. So if I may, there's a brilliant book called Working Class Patients in the Medical Establishment by David Green of Civitas. It tells the story of how it happened. There's a quote in it from Oddfellow's Friendly Society, which caused me to join Oddfellow's straight away. Working people are awakening to the fact that this, the 1911 National Insurance Act, is an attempt to take from the class to which they belong the governance of the great voluntary institutions they have built up for themselves mm. and to hand them over to the paid servants of the governing class. This is not the development of liberty. This is not the development of self-government, but a new form of autocracy and tyranny, not the less but more dangerous for its benevolent intent. That is my favourite quote in politics, bar none, ever. That is who I am. <laughs> Defiant working class libertarian who wants to care for other people. I would love to live in a society where people share this defiant spirit of community and care for their neighbour. And they care, they're so caring for their neighbour, they want to run the institution themselves. They don't want somebody else to do that. Steve, the, the reason that the 1911 Act came in and why in 1945 the same uh, you know, expropriation was, was committed against the hospitals, uh, which had been built up by these friendly societies, were nationalised by, uh, by Atlee. Mm. Um, the reason that happened is before 1911 and before 1945, the friendly society movement, the mutuals, the co-ops, were not delivering for the country. There, was, there wasn't enough of them. The coverage was poor. There was, there was too much poverty. You might say that was, the, that was the economy of the time. It certainly was. But there was a massive popular push for nationalisation because it was felt that the organic self-help movement wasn't cutting it. And I, I fear we would have the same attitude well, today. There's absolutely no way to go back to friendly societies running on public services now, no. And I am fed up now, I'm afraid, with this collectivist approach to welfare mm. and de deprivation. We need to be thinking about every last individual. Mm. So again, it's one of those areas where we've got common concerns and ask, have to ask how best do we deal with them. But what I would say is, how's it working out? Mm. And where are we going? Mm. And the reason that the welfare state has proven to be so dangerous is if you look at the Government Actuary Department report on the National Insurance Fund, or the OBR's projection, the welfare state is going to default in our lifetime, starting from about 2043. And since taxation is already about the practical limit, what are we going to do? And that's why I'm putting these things out there. But look at what we've had to do as a government. I abstain on it. We've raised national insurance contributions for working-aged people to pay for age-related spending for older people. But look at the OBR's projections. It's not going to work for very long. I think the OBR's fiscal sustainability report in July will show that the pandemic catapulted us forward about 20, 25 years on their debt projection. That is going to crystallise existential questions of funding the welfare state and its age-related spending promises 20 years sooner than we thought. So my question to anybody who thinks it's all a great idea and the rest of it is, what are you going to do? Because I know what I want to do. I want to create a free society where we collectively fund one another but where we have better mechanisms for ensuring that people are connected to the cost and the quality of the services that they have and actually choosing to participate in running them. Because unless we reconnect the public to the cost and the quality of their services, I don't think we'll ever get through these problems. How is that different, though, from a friendly society model where people are paying into a fund that then pays out when they need help? So Isn't that what you're describing? Well, so if we go back to the Open Public Services White Paper, which our party produced under Cameron, it was good stuff. Mm. One of the things it set out to do was to extend the Blairite model with hospitals, foundation trusts. And I think what I saw with Blair and foundation trusts 
was an attempt to move in the direction of friendly society-based management of hospitals. Brilliantly. Mm. One of the big mistakes we made as a party with Blair is we didn't just get behind his healthcare reforms because they didn't go far enough or whatever. Mm. Crazy, crazy poor tactical politics. We should have just seized what they were doing and run with it and then done more of it. Mm. And instead we've ended up now occasionally going around with privatising the NHS, which of course we're not doing. Mm. Um, but I, I would like to pick up the, the Blairite health yeah. reforms and walk yeah. with them. So just let's talk about health and the, the, just referring back to our earlier conversation about power, remote uh, power outside our country. COVID, I mean, it was over COVID that you and I are really connected, I think, Steve, because yeah. I, I've been sort of radicalised by the experience, having thought in the early stages it's quite right and natural and appropriate for government to take a very... Uh, to intervene very strongly in our in society and in the, uh, what we have to do and in the economy. What bothered me was as time went by, the momentum for control, even while politicians themselves, including the government, were, uh, were, were raising questions about the necessity of it, there seemed to be an institutional momentum for ever greater power and a reluctance on the part of particularly advisors to government to ever consider there might be a good moment to loosen up and that struck me as really indicative of the of the nature of a of a central bureaucracy it always wants to accrete power and to extend its its reach what's your so i mean i'd be interested in your perspective on that i think you were fairly lockdown skeptic from the outset what was your experience of that in a couple of years of watching the nhs and government and public health just continually drive for ever more uh, restrictions and, 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 and the broader commentariat and the Labour Party and the, and the professions all doing the same. Well Danny the first thing is it makes my heart leap with joy to hear you talk like this. It does. <laughs> it does because it tells me that we are in the right party together because you know I love community you mm. love community you turn out to love liberty against the state as I do and you know the two of us have inched our way towards one another and it's been a great joy to me to watch it happening. Um, but so that's my reaction to what you said. But yeah, I've always been horrified by it. But at the beginning of the people thought I changed my view on lockdown. I didn't really. It's just it was a total fait accompli out of nowhere when it started. So when it was announced, I was speaking in the House of Commons. Just before, it was Boris made his speech. I actually announced it in an intervention in the Commons. And then I spoke. But it was a total fait accompli. It was too late to have a view on it. Yes. And so what, given what was being said about the extent of the death we expected, I said the Prime Minister should sleep easily in his bed. But what else was to be said? I, mean, I think the thing that I found most frustrating at the time is how many people were trying everything they could to comply with all these things. There was no need to force anyone into it. Yeah. There, was, uh, there was more public unity and compliance on this than almost any other policy in kind of living memory. Yeah. The, the, there was never any need to bring punitive measures. You know, this was, you know, society was organically reacting to this. People were already choosing to come into work less. They were already choosing to restrict their movements and who they saw. Mm. You know, there was no there was no practical ability to enforce any of this stuff. And there was a huge amount of social will to do it. So the there was no case whatsoever for anything. So Sebastian, that's interesting. I'm just 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 uh, let's unpack that a bit because it's interesting. Why were people so keen to uh to lock themselves down? And how much do you think it was genuinely and purely fear of COVID? Uh, and a sense that they had a massive social responsibility to stop the spread, uh, versus an actual appetite among people for the kind of life that they could lead mm. if they didn't have to get on a 
trained to work, they didn't have to be furiously, frantically socialising. If they didn't have to, you know, uh, spend their time on the on the hamster wheel, and they, what they could do instead was spend time with family. They could actually get to know their neighbours and help out, uh, and they could live a quieter life. Obviously, we know that for many people, particularly young people in our cities and families in overcrowded accommodation, being asked to do that was an absolutely awful imposition. But for many people. It was almost the life that they wanted to lead. Do you think that's fair? Oh, I mean, I think that's completely fair. Um, but I also think there was a big difference. I mean, I remember the very first lockdown. It was actually quite attractive. I remember novel. I was, it was novel. I was saying, I think well, it was novel, and I was saying to my parents, and I remember the way that people interact with each other. There were fewer cars on the road. You saw everyone cycling and walking. You saw teenagers wandering the countryside no together. in the sky. You know, yeah. people were people were there was a, and there was a sense of kind of community spirit, and it was. I think that atmosphere got very different and much nastier. I think that happened about the time tracking came in, particularly once people started having apps. And I think rather than the the government acting to kind of say, well, the information is it's not as bad as we thought, um, we can live with this. Um, they the opposite message came through, and you know I see people who are still going around outside with masks on. You know that this is kind of a lasting, scarring legacy of fear, and people went from being we're all in this together. We've got to work together to taking photos of each other to telling each other off and i think masking in particular almost more, weirdly more than social distancing became very became a kind of visible way of punishing people because you can wear it yeah do you know you, you remind me of adam smith and his theory of moral sentiments because <laughs> you're talking about what I, this idea of a social covenant that is your unit's premise right what I think I've just heard you describe, Sebastian, is that this idea that people do feel an obligation mm. to one another. And it's a very long-standing and old obligation. We, we may not always be able to put words around it, and sometimes people may be selfish, but especially when you get away from London, people do feel obligation and fellow feeling towards one another. And I think we saw that in this voluntarism. But I wonder, what, what does the new social covenant unit image want to do to take these, this natural spirit of covenant and social responsibility, which we plainly all do feel, and somehow translate it into public policy? Yeah, we often talk about the role of the state is to create the conditions for people to be virtuous. And we think that you become virtuous by realising and understanding and attending to your responsibilities. And you feel them and you see them most keenly in association with your family and your community and your nation. But on COVID, I surprised myself, as a good communitarian, uh, at how immediately resistant I was to kind of this idea that we're all in it together, we've all got to stay at home. Part of that, I think, is because I was in one bed fat and happily um, with no outdoor space at the time. But also, I think it does go to kind of prove our point that is a philosophical one about how you, the individuals made happy, safe and free um, in families, communities and nations. Uh, when they're in association, happy association, families, communities, and during lockdown, um, I feel that the individual was made unhappy, certainly, unsafe and unfree, because um, we were, I was certainly kind of severed from my family and my community. That, and would, that, yeah. that was a great shame. And in fact, a total, is just completely tragic, the whole thing. Mm. And I'm with Miriam Cates MP, who talks really um, eloquently about this in terms of the government having really just one measure and that was all about deaths um and there's an american thinker whose name escapes me who talks about the deaths of despair and i think we did have deaths of despair um over lockdown and it was nothing to do with the virus can i pick up on two things you've said there one is this idea of severing relationship because to me society is relationship when thatcher said 
no such thing. She didn't really mean that. She meant it was in society is intangible because it's, it's mm. relationships. You can't touch them and feel them, but but they're still there. And yes, I think yes, what that just misunderstood. Yeah, you know. well, well, she did. She, you know, the speech repays reading closely. But she, what she meant is society is intangible. Um, yeah. And I think when I heard you use the word sever, that that's such a great word for it. Relationships were just severed. Mm. Um, yeah. And um, the other point about community is, you know, it's voluntary when it's healthy, and we, you know, all of us like community, but we like like to choose who we're friends yeah. with. I'd agree with you. I think enforcement is a big problem let's just finish up with a word about the future steve um in on the subject of, of, of health and power i was going to try and get to this the who proposals for global pandemic response and, mm. a, and a readiness for uh for the next one yeah i mean i think it's true to say we were not ready for the pandemic even in spite of lots of warnings that this was a likely event mm. Uh, the systems of the state scrambled to respond. It's right, therefore, that we think about the next threat. And it might not be the same sort of virus, it might not even be mm. a virus, but some other you know, appalling threat could, could affect us. What do we do? And imagine if the proposal came up, and my friend Robert Cummings uh, proposed this a little while back, uh, suggesting that what we need to do is every morning uh, when you're brushing your teeth, you should blow into a little gadget it's hooked up by Bluetooth to your phone, and an app uploads the data into a global database. Uh, and if everyone in the world is doing this, or enough people in the world are doing this, we would be able to get ahead of any uh, disease outbreaks that are happening and enable a collective response, which will quickly lock down that bit of the world or bring in the vaccines that are necessary. Uh, you can see it working. What's wrong with that? It won't be absolutely tyrannical, apart from the fact you can't afford to do it for most of the world, I would have thought. But the, this is why I fell out with Dominic Cummings from the first. I remember, was it Sebastian Payne or James Forsyth, one of those journalists, mm -hmm. tweeting something about Dominic's early work. Um, what was it called? The Hollow Man or something. But I said it reads like, I read it and I said it reads like a satire on Popper. In other words, if only we could find the right philosopher kings and give them absolute power, everything would be better. And I commend to anyone, read mm -hmm. Karl Popper's um, the, the open society and its enemies because Dominic clearly hadn't and Dominic is it's like a I'm afraid it's to me Dominic's work very often it's, it's he sells it brilliantly but it very it, I'm, I'm going to use the word it's like a childish fantasy and it, it's been disproven in history time and time again there are no wise philosopher kings there is nobody who can be trusted with power to that extent it's never going to happen. It's never accessible. Okay, except acceptable. now, except now, the power is, is is establishing itself, and it's called technology. So when Popper was writing, yeah, they okay, they had they had some pretty terrifying technologies then emerging, but nothing like we've got now in, yeah. the, in the form of what these tech giants can do, much more powerful than any state. And when a state and a, and the tech giants get into collaboration, they have the potential to 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 uh, to rule our world. And the potential for disaster is so much greater. Well, that's so well. So well, that's so interesting. It's only states that claim a territorial monopoly on the legitimate use of force. That is to imprison and even kill people. Google and Amazon and Facebook. They might well. Amazon undoubtedly has too big a monopoly on selling stuff, and that's partly my fault because I buy too much on Amazon. But they undoubtedly have big monopolies. But when I hear you talking about the risks they face and how they could rule the... Well, 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 hang on a minute. They haven't got fighter jets and they haven't got strategic nuclear weapons 
and they're not going to be marching into anybody's countries. Now, there's undoubtedly there is a case that they have power, but you know, on Facebook, you're the product, right? That's why it's free because you're the product if you're on mm. Facebook. But I barely use Facebook because I don't like it. I quite like Instagram, but I only put stuff on there that I want on there. I use Twitter a lot, mostly to reach journalists. If I was a private citizen, I'd just disconnect. And then they've got no power over me. Now, that, that's a choice. So when I, when I hear this idea of their power, it's undoubtedly the case that those private institutions have power, but they can't tax you, they can't imprison you, they can't use legitimate force against you. Okay, so my question is, can't they? Because if we see, for example, how Facebook was employed in multiple elections in America in order to influence um, public opinion, that takes away people's main tool to constrain government, their ability to hold them accountable in elections. If they can't get information about what the government's doing, if they're being misled, um, if, if they can't see what the government's doing, they're not able to do anything about it. And, you know, that becomes an even more pressing question if you look at the relationship between private corporations in a country like Russia or China, where... The, where in fact it may quite literally be that a private company can employ state force against you um, for well, okay. of the state. So that I absolutely agree that there is a huge question and debate to be had about the use of information and what it means for power and influence amongst private actors. Yeah, of course, I totally agree with that. But I'm just, and of course, you're also right that in some regimes, the state and private corporation get mixed up together. But this then just comes back to just. This then comes back to mm-hmm. fundamental questions about what kinds of institutions that we want. Mm-hmm. And I want the institutions of a free society. And the institutions of a free society deny people the opportunity to use power against one another. It's all should be about choice and voluntary exchange. Now, if we're getting into a world where tech companies are such monopolies that it's practically impossible to escape their embrace, well, maybe there's, there's something that we have to do about that. But... Um, I just note that, you know, once upon a time, IBM was a very big name and now not so much. And, you know, even these biggest firms, the wheel turns and the world moves on. Somebody will do better than Google one day. You don't think we should be taking action to break up these tech giants, these essential monopolies? Well, I wouldn't rule out thinking about whether or not they've got effective monopolies and Mm. that some uh, pro-competitive action needs to be taken. Mm. But I'm instinctively against it. Steve, that's been brilliant. Let's just end with one sentence or two from you, to, which we'll wrap up with, which is, oh. what do you... We, we talk about the common good uh, as the goal of politics. What do you like that phrase, and what does it mean to you, and what is the common good? Well, my great favourite author, Mises, Ludwig von Mises, wrote, society is cooperation, it is community in action. So what does the common good mean in that framework? It means people, free people, choosing wisely, able to cooperate to meet sometimes common and sometimes individual ends. But the common good must mean peace, free trade, the rule of law, parliamentary Mm -hmm. democracy. But I'm talking there about institutions rather than ends. It's not equal outcomes, you can't have that. But we can have equal opportunity, we can treat one another with respect, we can have equal dignity as human beings, uh, and equal opportunity to pursue happiness. I mean, I would say no one left behind and no one held back. It's a sort of dream I would have for society. No one left behind and no one held back from being all they can be. But that is about the choice that each one of us makes, which in the end is about that big word we haven't talked about, love. It's a great word. Thank you, Steve Baker. Thank you very much indeed for having me on, Danny. Great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Tribes of Westminster podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, 
why not subscribe to have a magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today, the current offer of 5 issues for £10, by heading to our website.